harmonic oscillators. And remember that one mode is identified as the polar amplification at a particular frequency and a particular mode And if there are multiple bands, then you also have to say which band you're, you're talking about. And uh, for a particular mode, we've gotten uh, so much far in our calculation of the, of the specific heat. So we looked at the average energy in the mode. And again, this is one mode. So we zoom in, right? We have this dispersion curve. And we zoom in on one band. And we zoom in on one wave vector that has a particular frequency associated with that mode. And that's what we're looking at here. What's the average thermal energy in that mode? Okay, because there's a difference between our band structure that we calculated for the phonons and whether or not the mode is actually excited. What we're studying right now is a case of thermodynamic equilibrium where there's a particular temperature inside the system and states get occupied according to the Boltzmann factor, even the minus energy over KT. And based on that, there will be then, for every phonon mode, there will be a particular thermal energy in it, and that's what this is measuring. And this is related to this right here, uh, the 1 over e to the beta h bar minus omega is the average thermal occupancy of that phonon mode. Okay, and that tells us roughly how many, how many phonons are, are in the mode. This is the partition function of the mode. And again, it's, it's a one mode partition function. Simply says, you know, what's, this is about what's the probability of having a particular number of phonons in that particular mode, and then this has averaged over that probability function. Okay, so I hope that's, you know, reaching back into your brain for the last statistical mechanics course you found. And by the way, there's there's a, an announcement I should make. Uh, Craig here is is recording the lectures most of the time, and so I have some MP3 files actually posted uh, online now, thanks to Craig. And I was listening to them, and I found out, of course, I still talk way too fast. So if you are not a native English speaker, that's a lot of you, and I'm talking too fast, please just ask me to slow down. Okay, just raise your hand and say, you are speaking too fast. <laughs> please slow down. <laughs> Everyone will thank you. Because I, I, know, I know that's a habit I have. I, I talk a little bit too fast. Today, we are going to finish off the heat capacity of phonons in a crystal. In order to do that, we're going to have to introduce the concept of the density of states, and this is a, a concept that will come up again and again, so it's a good, good concept to pay attention to. We will also discuss what's called the Debye approximation, which is uh, something we can use to help us calculate the heat capacity of phonons without having to do the entire problem exactly. And then, if we have time today, we will get into the free electron model. Okay, I believe your book calls this free electron model. Today, the modern language for this is called Fermi-liquid theory because electrons are fermions, so that's the Fermi name. And liquid tells you that we're studying uh, a system of electrons that are in a liquid-like state, okay? meaning this is a system that's capable of carrying current. Okay? If you put a voltage on it, the electrons can flow, which is a liquid-like state. So where are we? Phonons. Again, phonons are sound particles. Okay, This part here you know, is a, is a root having to do with sound, phonic, for example. So phonons are little sound particles. And they're quantized vibrational modes inside the solid. They're harmonic oscillator modes, okay, to a certain degree, right? We could go one step further and take into account the terms and the potential that are anharmonic. 
but the lowest energy terms are harmonic oscillator modes. They're quantized. If you've ever uh, looked at um, Planck's law, okay, you, you looked at photons and how photons get quantized inside of a box. Very similar problem here. Okay, looks a lot like Planck's law. And so here, for example, is how I would quantize phonons inside of a crystal. Okay, I have specific energy modes that are that are allowed due to how large the crystal is, for example. Okay, so we were often thinking of an infinite size system, but to make the math accessible, what we often do is first quantize things in a box. This is what physicists always do, right? You studied in quantum mechanics an atom in a box, right? That sort of thing. We like, we like to put things in a box because then we know exactly what the boundary conditions are. And at the end of the day, you'll write down that math and then take the limit as that box goes to infinity. So here, for example, a phonon in a crystal okay, can have a wavelength that's as large as the size of the system. But then at the end of the day, we'll let the system size uh, go to infinity. So just to emphasize what we mean when there's a certain number of phonons in a mode, one phonon in a mode will look like the atoms in the crystal being able to displace a certain amount, okay? But then, if I put more phonons in that mode, the amplitude goes up. This is just a schematic representing that more phonons means a higher amplitude of the vibrations. Okay, another phonon mode would, would have a different profile, a different uh, wavelength associated with it, but again, if you add another phonon in it, you'll get a different, uh, you'll get more, more amplitude in the vibrations. You have a question? Yeah, why is the wave function go to zero at the edges of the box for the two phonons on the right? Oh, that's a mistake. Did you do that? <laughs> so, we are interested in what's the heat capacity in a crystal due to the phonon vibrations. And again, heat capacity, just to remind you, is half is a measure of how much thermal energy can be contained in those modes, okay? Because in thermodynamic equilibrium, we believe that each energy mode has a particular probability of being occupied according to the Boltzmann distribution. So as I try to add heat to a system, that energy which gets added as heat will distribute itself microscopically in the modes, okay? And if there are more modes available in the system, I will have to put in more heat energy before I can raise the temperature. If there are fewer modes in the system available, then I can raise the temperature pretty quickly. So heat capacity will be a measure of that. It's the change in the internal energy versus the temperature. Okay, so it has to do with occupying internal energy modes. And uh, so that's that's what we're calculating today. This is just a, a slide from from last lecture reminding you that a high heat capacity stores a lot of energy as heat. Low heat capacity doesn't store a lot of energy as heat. And just to to remind yourself that, that you've seen this before, large bodies of water or humid air, for example, has a high heat capacity. And so humidity in the air will stabilize the temperature. Ask someone who's, who's visited a desert or lived in an arid climate, there are wild temperature fluctuations from noon to midnight if there's not a lot of water in the air. <coughs> so this, these are the main results that we'll take home from today. We'll calculate these. So looking at a phonon heat capacity, this <laughs> function here, this is the Bose-Einstein distribution function. We're using Bose-Einstein distribution function because phonons are bosons. They carry no spin, okay? Therefore, they're bosons, spinless particles. And this is the average thermal occupation of a phonon mode. Remember always to distinguish. We have a dispersion, 
but this tells us how much a particular k vector uh, mode is occupied. That's according to this distribution here. And another thing that we uh, that's taken account taken into account here is that that uh, bosons don't have to be conserved. Okay, if I had a system of fermions, if I had a system of electrons. I could not let temperature just arbitrarily create electrons. That doesn't happen, right? But what's going on here is as I turn up the temperature, the occupation number of phonon moons will go up. Okay, that's because temperature temperature can excite a new phonon mode. So temperature can create phonons because they're just thermal vibrations. Okay, so we have to keep in mind as well statistics of the various particles. So we can create phonons, no problem. And what we'll find is that the heat capacity at low temperature, due to phonons, goes like T cubed. That's for a crystal in three dimensions. You'd get a different answer if you were in five dimensions or other different dimensions. That T cubed is temperature? Temperature. That tau is. That tau. Sorry about that. Yes. Okay. T. Good question. And at high temperature, the phonon heat capacity will, will approach the equipartition. <laughs> Equipartition says at high enough temperatures, all the modes are occupied equally. Okay, and then we get this is just by by mode counting. Remember, the heat capacity is has to do with the number of modes in the system. So eventually, you get all the modes occupied, and you have a three n out front for n atoms times three dimensions, the different ways that they can vibrate, and then the unit, of course, of heat capacity kb here. So to calculate the total energy, we'll have to figure out how to count phonons. First, we're studying one phonon to remind you where we were. We'd like to calculate a heat capacity, so we need an energy coefficient. Step one, do some statistical mechanics and calculate the average energy in a phonon mode. So this is one phonon mode. And the average <coughs> energy then, yeah, you, you use the partition function in the denominator, use the partition function in the numerator, but also stick in the energy in every term of the sum, and that gives you an average of the energy over the various probabilities of being in that state. It's got this nice analytic form, which is what we use to derive this. Okay, We summed up the partition function exactly, use this formula, and derive this for the average energy, which was at a nice physical interpretation in that it exactly looks like the harmonic oscillator energy that we started with. This harmonic energy, this harmonic oscillator energy is microscopically what's here and here, and when you average over it, what ends up happening is that you, you average over this value here. Okay, So what comes out of this formula is the average occupation of the phonon mode based on the Bose-Einstein distribution function. Are there any questions before I move on and calculate the rest of the heat capacity? So when you see this line, this generally will tell you that up here up top, I've put some formulas that we derived on previous pages. Okay, and I'm going to use those formulas to derive new things. So using these formulas, I can derive now the heat capacity of one phonon mode. It's the change in the internal energy with respect to temperature. And I always like to work in terms of beta. This beta is 1 over kT because it makes the math a lot easier. And so I can <coughs> use the chain rule here to express this derivative with respect to temperature in terms of beta. Okay, So I get uh, the derivative of energy with respect to beta, but I have to also multiply by d beta by dt. Okay, d beta by, by d temperature, 
since this is a 1 over temperature, ends up with a minus 1 over temperature squared, okay, times now the derivative of this function with respect to beta. So where does this part come from? This term contributes nothing. There is no temperature dependence in there. That's the zero point energy. Okay. This has beta in it, so there's the temperature dependence. There's an h bar out in front, which was a constant with respect to temperature. And then taking the derivative of this function here, I get a minus 1 over what's in the, the denominator squared, okay, times then uh, the derivative of the exponential again. So here is the rest of that. There's a factor missing up here, right? E to the beta h bar omega. Could you repeat what you said? Yeah, I just said there's a factor up here missing. Maybe ignore that formula and concentrate on this one. This one's correct. Okay, <laughs> because what I needed to do to take the derivative of that, right, is, is take one over the denominator, minus one over the denominator squared. <coughs> then I have to take the derivative of what's in the denominator. <coughs> the derivative of e to the beta h bar omega pulls down another h bar omega times e to the beta h, beta h bar omega. Okay, just a factor missing there. So if we plot out this heat capacity, okay, we get this. Now I've plotted it in terms of temperature because if you plot things you want to plot in terms of temperature. It's what, what people are used to thinking of physically. So here's the heat capacity of one phonon mode versus temperature. <coughs> this function here comes in pretty flat for a while, but then dives down to zero. Okay, and that's important because if it didn't do that, it would be violating the third law of thermodynamics. Okay, we have to freeze out the modes at zero temperature. What's left over here, okay, is the classical value. What does classical mean? Classical is using the echo partition limit. Okay, so classical is a high temperature limit that ignores the, the quantization of the energy values. And the the high temperature limit, of course, is one KB per mode. Okay, so physically the system does approach the classical echo partition value at high temperatures. Okay. What's left over, what's interesting here is you can take the difference in, you can take the energy, sorry, take the area here, okay, and that area gives you an energy. That energy is exactly equal to this distance here, exactly equal to the zero point energy. Okay, so this is a very quantum result to get this downturn there, but it's necessary, otherwise you could violate the third law of thermodynamics. That was one phonon mode. Now we'd like to do the entire system. We'd like to take our average energy per mode, and what we'd like to do is we need to get a total energy for the system based on that. The easiest way to do that would be to take some integral over frequency, take, take an integral over the energy modes of the average energy. It turns out that there's a factor we need to do that, okay? And that's called the density of states. The density of states is the density is physically the density of modes per energy slice you look at. So if you look at a particular d omega energy slice, how many modes are lying in there? Okay, I have to define it as an energy slice because if I said how many modes are at a particular energy, okay, you you might get zero because you might have missed the right quantized level. So you really have to look at at an energy range in order to define this function. So let's count modes. We're going to spend a while calculating the density of states, by the way. So count modes first. Let's, let's look in one dimension. And 
the easiest way to count these modes is to let the system wrap back around on itself. You have a question. Hi, when you talk about Bose-Einstein distribution, can, can you explain what, what Bose-Einstein distribution is talking about? Okay. Yeah, I'm totally confused about this concept. Have you seen it in a statistical mechanics class? Uh, I, don't take, I didn't take it. Okay, okay. So the... What, what you need to take home from that is that it, it, Bose-Einstein distribution function is the name that goes along with the average occupancy of the phonon mode thermally. So it just tells us for a particular phonon mode, on average, thermally, how many phonons are in that mode. That's, that's the physical thing to take <coughs> from that. Is the mode, mode is the same, same word as energy? Yeah, the mode. So here... Here's uh, the plots we've been using, frequency versus k space. Okay. And a mode means, well maybe I have another band up here too. So mode means pick a band, number one, so let me pick the lowest band, and then pick a value of k. This right here represents one physical normal mode of vibration of a crystal, which is at this wavelength and has this energy. That's what I mean by a mode, right there. The upper band? What? Yeah. So I could do the same thing. I could. So usually, what you do is you label the bands. You say first band, second band. Okay. So I could say there's there's obviously another mode up here at the same wave vector, okay. but it's in the optical band. Remember, we labeled this optical and acoustic. <coughs> but if you get 15 bands, you'll just want to use numbers: first band, second band, third band. <coughs> So this is also a different mode, right here. Okay, what it represents is a particular vibrational pattern inside the crystal. Yes? Uh, just to make sure I have the nomenclature right, what you're doing for the total energy is you're integrating the average energy times the density states over the sum of overall the omega. That's right. Okay. That's right. So typically well, the d omega would be at the end. <coughs> oh, this is, this is a... Uh, Maybe this is how physicists do it or something. Well, that's actually how math people do it. <laughs> but what, what ends up, the reason, the reason we, we often switch to this notation uh -huh. when you start getting really long formulas is that, you know, it's better to just write the integral and then tell me the measure and then put the integrand after it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So if you haven't seen this notation before, I've put the put the measure of the integral before the integrand. Um, it's very useful when you're doing long homework sets and you have an integrand that runs over three lines. Yeah. This is. Yeah. Thanks for asking. We'll build this formula up too, by the way. Are there any other questions before I go on? Okay. So we've taken a one-dimensional system of atoms, wrap it back around <coughs> on itself. So that's periodic boundary conditions. At the end of the day, we'll take the limit of the system size goes to infinity, so that won't matter. And I can only get an integral number of wavelengths around here once I put on the periodic boundary conditions. So n represents the number of atoms here, which looks like there's about nine in there. A is the spacing between atomic sites. And I'm only allowing an integral number of wavelengths. So this n, okay, this represents n is in the set of integers. So n is some integer. 0, 1, 2, 3, something like that. 
And n times the lattice spacing gives me the entire length of the system. So that's L. Now, to get the wave vector, I always take... Yes, question? Is This counting will work for any kind of mode. We've been studying the longitudinal modes, where in our one-dimensional crystal, yeah. the atoms it could do that. But then how we, how we can do how we can know the n lambda equals to n a? I mean Yeah. The, the same the same will apply. Okay. Yeah, whether it's what what you're talking about is the polarization of a mode, and that'll become important when we move on to three dimensions. <coughs> is in a three dimensional crystal the atoms can vibrate <coughs> in line or they can vibrate out of line. And we'll have to, to take that into account for our counting. Okay. So for right now, consider one dimension where they're only allowed to wiggle along the line. And I take the wave vector, which is 2 pi over the wavelength, okay? And using this formula, that becomes 2 pi n over L. So then the smallest k step I can have, okay, if n goes from 0 to 1, for example, that's the smallest step in k space I'm allowed to make, is 2 pi over L. So this tells me then, for a finite size system, how much distance there is in, in this graph here, right? So for a finite size system, I'm not really allowed to draw a line there. I only have particular values of k that are available. Okay. As I take the limit that the system size goes to infinity, <coughs> these points okay, will come together. And I'll get a continuum in the, in the large size limit. But for now, it's quantized. And then to count this, we're interested in the number, we're interested in how to count modes. Okay. How many modes are there in a particular energy slice? We can count the modes per wave vector a little bit easier. That is to say, if this is the step size in wave vector, then I can say that there's one mode per delta k in k space. Okay, we need to go on and count that in energy space. But in k space, one mode per 2 pi over i. <coughs> or equivalently, I could have said, well, there's n modes per the entire range of k space, because the entire range of k space goes from <coughs> minus pi over a to pi over a, which is 2 pi over a gives me the same number. So no matter how you count these phonon moves, they have to come up with the same answer. I believe that is exactly the same information. <laughs> Just spread out a little bit more. Okay, these are the actual values that k can take on. Okay. If I plug in the values of n, k can be 0, plus or minus 2 pi over l, plus or minus 4 pi over l, and so on. But you know, how far do we get to go? We only get to go up to k being pi over a. So if L is n times a, this is plus or minus pi over a. So that's how far we go. Now, now is when we actually calculate a density <coughs> of states. So what I'd like to do is convert is convert a sum over modes into an integral over energies. Okay? Frequency, energy, same thing. I just multiply by h bar. Frequency and energy physically uh, get interchangeable as concepts. So I'd like to sum, for example, the average energy per mode. I'd like to sum that over the modes. But first we'll work with, well, how do we count this and convert it into an integral over frequency space? So the sum over all the modes in the crystal, in the one-dimensional case, is just the sum over these n's, because that's been counted the various modes. So sum over n, I can convert that into an integral. 
okay? Integral dn minus n over 2 to n over 2. This is okay if I take the limit of the system size going large. Okay. Now, the other thing to notice when you convert a sum to an integral is a sum is unitless. Right? There are no units associated with a summation symbol. There are units associated with an integration symbol because of the measure here. Okay? But my measure here is unitless. So this is okay. Right? I do this step because then I can convert into wave vectors. The wave vectors have a unit, so this helps me figure out what that factor is in front. So if n is lk over 2 pi, then every time I see this n here, I need to put it in l over 2 pi times k. So here's the l over 2 pi times dk, and now k runs from minus pi over a to pi over a. Just, this is a bit tedious, but <laughs> this, is, this is how you actually derive these things. And I convert this then, okay, since minus pi over a to pi over a is a symmetric range, okay, I'm just going to convert that into the positive values. Okay, so let me just convert that into an integration over positive values. I lost a factor of 2 because, that, because of that. This is directly defined <coughs> as an integral over frequency space, okay, where I integrate from zero frequency, which is the bottom of the band, up to whatever the top of the band is. Over frequency, this thing here, whatever comes up, is the density of states by definition. This g of omega is defined as the density of states. So how do I get the conversion there? If I start from here, I'd like to convert this measure into a d omega. I take dk by d omega times d omega, which is right here. So everything that's left over, dk by d omega l over pi, is the density of states. So I've written that here. This is, again, a one-dimensional case as L over pi 1 over d omega dk. Okay. Is that legal? I take dk by d omega, which is 1 over d omega dk. That's, that's legal. That's how partial derivatives work. No problem there. I re-express this in terms of d omega dk because the density of states has to be in terms of frequency. Okay. That's very important. You will have homework problems about density of states. Be sure your density of states is plotted against frequency because that's its definition is about frequency space. So it's just better here to be taking uh, derivatives with respect to um, from the frequency like itself. DK, so the group velocity. It is. It is. So that's the group velocity that way. <laughs> Other questions about the one-dimensional case? Okay. We are tediously defining the density of states so that we can calculate a phonine heat capacity. Right, that gets a star. Density of states is important. So, again, just to sum up, this is the definition of the density of states. Sum over all the modes in the system, which means sum over the bands, sum over the polarizations, sum over the k-vectors. Okay, in one dimension, we just had to sum over k-vectors. Convert that to an integral over frequency space. The factor that comes out is the density of states. It represents physically the number of modes per energy slice. Okay. And the density of states only says what modes are possible. It doesn't actually tell you whether or not they're occupied. So just to, let's see. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll calculate this. So let's do an example here of the one-dimensional monatomic chain. Okay, and then we'll get back in the physical interpretation of the density of states. This is what we derive for the one-dimensional monatomic chain. 
what the, uh, the phonon dispersion looks like. Omega is 2 times the square root of k over m times the absolute value of sine of ka over 2. <coughs> it's that bottom acoustic band there. Okay? The density of states in one dimension is L over pi, 1 over d omega dk. So here's how I would calculate all of that. Step one, calculate d omega dk. Okay, so here's the frequency. I want to simply take the derivative with respect to k. Now, there's technically an absolute value up here, okay, so we'll have to watch out for that. Could you point where that? Comes? Sorry, down here, d omega dk. Make sure that stays positive, okay, because we're counting numbers of those. So, absolute value right here. So, take the derivative of this. Okay, I get the factors out in front, 2 square root of k over m. Uh, the derivative of a sine is a cosine, k times a over 2. Then, using a trig substitution, this cosine then uh, becomes, sorry, this, these equation signs here are just for the cosine. So the cosine itself, okay, is the square root of 1 minus sine squared. <coughs> That's 1 minus omega squared m over 4k gives this sine squared k over 2 is directly proportional to omega. Okay. So why did I do all of that? I want this expressed in terms of frequency, not wave vector. Okay, density of states is about frequencies. So that's key. Express this in terms of the frequency. Now plug this in for the cosine, okay, and I get this. The net result is a times the square root of k over m minus omega squared over 4. Okay, just substituted this expression in for the cosine. So the density of states then is L over pi, okay, times 1 over this expression. So 1 over A puts an A down there, 1 over the square root puts a minus uh, 1 half there. That's the, dense, that's the formal expression for the density of states of a one-dimensional chain. So what does it look like? Okay, here's the information we have. Here's the dispersion of a monatomic chain. Here's the density of states of a monatomic chain. And this should look familiar, right? This is the dispersion curve, uh, wave vector versus frequency. Um, I just did this in mathematics, so I didn't really label the axes. But you can see this is coming out to pi, right? It should come out to pi over a, from minus pi over a to pi over a. I've set constants equal to 1 just to make this easy. The density of states, if you want to plot a density of states next to a dispersion, here's the best way to do it. Frequency is on the vertical axis there. Put frequency on the vertical axis here and density of states on the horizontal axis. Okay. So the density of states is reading this way. So at the lowest frequency, I have a finite number of modes available per energy slice. Okay. L over pi A has to do with the size of the system, the number of, of atoms there. So that's referring to down here. Okay. How many modes per energy slice are here? Okay. What's going on here? This is blowing up, right? As I get to the top of the band, here, the density of states has gone to infinity. So what that means physically is that right here, okay, as I start trying to count the number of modes that are in this energy slice, well, the dispersion went flat there. Anytime the dispersion goes flat, as I take this limiting process of how many modes are in that energy <coughs> slice there, it goes infinite, okay, because it's running tangent. So that's why this blew up. This always happens in a density of states. If you have the band rollover, which it always does at the zone edge, okay, 
If the group velocity goes flat, the density of modes goes infinite there. Question? Yeah, I when we integrated uh, density of states, we already made algorithm infinity. And so... So you're worried that the whole thing is infinite? Well, I just don't see the distinction. I mean, if you have Here? a label, yeah, you yeah. don't see... You're right. This is also going to go infinite in the thermodynamic limit. <coughs> so we keep it controlled in the meantime. You know, physically, if you, if you do measurements, you actually are working with a finite size crystal, right? So this right here, you know, if you measured this, this right here would give you a measure of how many atoms are in the crystal. But you're, you're, you're absolutely right. If I think, you know, I take the, if I really took the thermodynamic limit now, at this point, the whole curve would run off to infinity. Okay, this part far worse. Okay, even for a finite-sized crystal, this one is right <coughs> here. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. Are there other questions? So, does the density of states g of omega only refer to one, like just the Brillouin zone? It just refers to the density of states in one zone? Yes. Yeah, and that's because all the physical modes are contained in the blue zone. Okay. All right, if I go to higher wave vectors and I go out of the first blue zone, then that wavelength is so small that it's the wavelength itself is oscillating between atoms and it doesn't mean anything. Okay. So we always translate high wave vectors, which are very short wavelengths, back into the longer, longest wavelength that's equivalent, which is go back to the first blue zone. Any other questions? Yeah. Um, so is it uh, the density of states, which is, is assumed g of omega that goes to infinity, or is it partial of g with respect to omega that goes to infinity? That would be saying that partial of omega with respect to g is <laughs> going to zero. I'm not so entirely sure what you're asking, but turn, turn this graph right. sideways, okay? So if this is the density of states, what I'm representing here is that this is an asymptotic okay. to zero. Okay. Okay. I'm not sure about derivatives. Okay. But you can calculate it. Okay. Any other questions? Okay. So just to, to emphasize the physical distinction here, the density of states tells me how many modes are how many modes are available for energy slice. It goes to infinity when the group velocity goes to zero. And the density of states, okay, this graph here, doesn't tell me anything about the thermal occupation. It tells me how many vibrational modes are possible. It doesn't tell me at all whether they're occupied. So at very low temperatures, only these guys will be occupied. Okay? These guys will not be very occupied. They're occupied according to the Boltzmann factor. E to the minus frequency <coughs> over kT. So at very low temperatures, these are barely occupied, even though they have an infinite density of states. And as I raise the temperature, more and more of these will get occupied. Okay, there's just a lot more modes available here to eventually get occupied. So moving on to three dimensions. Okay. Again, the scheme is take a sum over modes and then convert that into an integral over frequency. So now if I'm in three dimensions, Okay, again, I have wave vectors to count over. The wave vectors, kx, ky, and kz, are three components. 
So I can convert that in for 2 pi of nx over l, and y over l and z over l. Okay, well these are all again integers. All the little n's are, are separately integers, 0, 1, 2, 3, etc. And this, uh, this is thinking about a cubic case. Okay, so this is really thinking about a, a case of cubic symmetry, and I have a sample that is itself a cube. So these are the right coordinates to use in that case. So here, in summing over the modes, I have to sum over polarizations as well. Okay. Polarization means in a, in a three-dimensional crystal, if I have a wave vector defined, it has a direction in space. Okay. So a wave vector tells me which way the phonon is moving. So that's a direction in space. Then if I look at how are the atoms microscopically moving, that tells me the polarization. So if the wave vector is going that way, phonon is traveling that way, and the atoms are bumping up against each other in that direction, that's a longitudinal mode, meaning the motion is along the wave vector. If, however, the atoms are moving like this, okay, that's a transverse mode, transverse to the direction of the wave vector. And there are two transverse modes, okay, one direction perpendicular and the other direction perpendicular. So all in all, there are three polarizations here, okay, one longitudinal and two transverse. That's just set by the dimension. And then I have a sum over these ends. Okay. So the, the sum over n converts itself into <coughs> an integral over dn. Okay, and this looks just like before, except now I have three of them to take into account. They have the same limits because you're assuming it's equal sided cube. That's right. Okay. That's right. So here, here's the three. Now again, I convert all of these integrals okay, into... Uh, just to sum over the positive numbers. Okay. That actually makes makes the math work out when you convert into frequency space, right? We don't want to be summing over both these branches. They're <coughs> symmetric, so we just sum over one branch. And then it makes, makes our lives easier. Then the velocities are all positive on that one branch. So we convert to the branch that's got all positive velocities. There's a factor of 8 that came out, right? Because here I had to get a factor of 2 from converting that integral. Factor of 2, factor of 2 gives me an 8, and I just converted the, the limits of integration, and now convert these n's, which are integers, into k. So again, this, these steps are allowed because it's all unitless. Integrate over dn, k is a unitless measure. Here, dk has units to it. So I can convert that by saying n sub x is k sub x times l over 2 pi. So here I get a bunch of l over 2 pi's when I convert the n's into k's, so l over 2 pi to the third. And then these integrals are again 0 to pi over a, 0 to pi over a, 0 to pi over a. And, okay, so keep these factors out in front and look at this three dimensional <laughs> integral. This is a three dimensional integral. And I can convert them into spherical coordinates, okay, with a 4 pi, which gives me the angles over the, the uh, sphere times the integral of k squared dk, um, represent that graphically. We're moving to spherical coordinates, okay. And the surface area of the sphere, if the sphere goes out to k, the surface area is 4 pi k squared is the surface area of the sphere. Okay. So we take that surface area and integrate out radiuses. That's, that's this formula here in a nutshell. Okay, spherical coordinates. Question? Um, for, uh, for, for this, uh, from the last step, uh, 
question is, do I have a factor of eight wrong? I think you're right. There's a factor of eight running around here because I converted this guy from a positive quadrant into a full quadrant. So I probably need a one over eight. Okay. <laughs> we'll check. We'll see how it comes out. But I think you're right. You go from this step to this step. Probably one eighth running around. Yeah, that's going to matter. Okay. So continuing this on up to factors of eight, the integral. Sum over molars. We get this, okay, for the integral in spherical coordinates. Now I'd like to convert this part into an integral over frequency space. Okay. So the integral in frequency space then is from zero to whatever the top of the band is. Keep the k squared, okay, and convert this dk into dk by d omega times d omega. And this whole thing, this whole messy thing, up to factors of eight. <laughs> is defined as the integral over the density of states <coughs> with the measure d omega. So this is what we're after, is the density of states. And I pull all of that out, okay? Everything that's left over here, all these factors in front, k squared dk by d omega. And the density of states here depends on k squared and one over, mess that up too, it's one over d omega dk. What is v defined as? Volume. <coughs> V is L cubed, volume over the sample. But if you plot this, right, this is really a function of omega. Okay, I leave the k squared here because I, you know, it's not obvious unless I know your band structure how to convert this k squared back into frequency. Okay, but if you plot this out, you have to invert your band structure so that you know how k squared depends on frequency because this is technically a function of frequency. Okay. So, counting the heat capacity. Okay. That was the, the density of states in three dimensions, but we can get some mileage without working quite that hard yet. Okay. So let's go back to, to simple physical arguments. In the high temperature limit of a three-dimensional cube, Okay, three-dimensional crystal that has phonon modes in it. In the high temperature limit, I can use the equipartition theorem, which tells me the following. Per squared term in the Hamiltonian, okay, we get a one-half kb for the heat capacity. Okay. If you haven't had thermodynamics yet, that's going to look kind of funny. But physically, what it means is that very high temperatures, all the modes get occupied equally by, by thermal energy. That's all this represents. Okay. So we get a one-half kb of heat capacity per squared term in the Hamiltonian. So here's a squared term, p squared. Here's a squared term, x squared. So I get two squared terms per phonon mode. And then counting all of that up, the total heat capacity in this system at high temperature is going to be 3n times kb. Okay. Because the number of modes available has to be 3 for dimension, n times the number of atoms, kb per phonon mode. So that's a 1 half kb per squared term. So this is the high temperature result for the heat capacity. So whatever we derive formally needs to go to this in the high temperature limit. Gets a star. Maybe the high temperature limit is important. Simply because you can derive it that fast. Okay. 
in the low temperature limit. Okay, I can make some approximations and again get an answer in the low temperature limit. At low temperatures, our dispersion, okay, so the dispersion doesn't change the temperature, right? The dispersion <coughs> is simply a function of geometry of the sample. Okay, how do the atoms link up to each other? That tells me this dispersion here. Now, at low temperatures, only the low energy modes are occupied. This is a very high energy if the temperature is low enough. So then, since only these low energy modes are occupied, I can approximate the dispersion as just being this part. Okay, and this low energy part is linear. And it's linear due to Goldstone's theorem, right? Okay, because we have broken a continuous symmetry, so the low energy elementary excitations of the system are linear and wave vector. So at low temperature, approximate uh, the, the energy as being uh, linear in the wave vector. The proportionality factor is the velocity, right? So the group velocity here. Group velocity, the omega equal is just the slope. Okay? This is a very geometric formula. Omega is slope times k for a linear system. And then I can take this derivative easily. D omega dk is now just velocity. That's good. Okay, so the group velocity at low frequency is just the velocity of sound in the system. That's what the S is doing sitting down here. Okay, this is velocity of sound. Now, I have, okay, per polarization, the density of states is the volume times k squared divided by 2 pi squared dk by d omega. Okay. Now, dk by d omega is Vs. Okay, k squared itself, right, k is omega over v. So here's an omega over v squared for the k squared. dk by d omega is 1 over v. Put all of that together, and I get a total amount of, of the velocity cubed down here. And notice I've converted everything now into frequency. There's no k's left, right? Before you finish the density of states problem, you have to be in terms of frequency that's what it's about. Now, really, okay, there's more modes than this. There's, there's polarizations. This was a per-polarization formula. This is taking into account all the polarizations because there's a longitudinal mode in three dimensions, okay, and there are two transverse modes. So if this was the form per-polarization, here, if I take into account the one longitudinal mode, where V sub L means longitudinal branch, T means the transverse branches, okay, with a factor of two for two transverse modes. Okay? What does this look like? Fudge, right? But you know, this was kind of fudged a bit, okay? <laughs> we didn't derive that formula, okay? We derived this formula, we use physical intuition to say one longitudinal plus two transverse modes. Just want to be honest when I haven't actually derived something, okay? <laughs> we use physical reasoning to get that. Now, Looking still at the low temperature limit, I take this average thermal occupancy, K, of the energy. The total energy is always going to be uh, sum over, sum all of this over the modes. Okay. Now, the zero point energy contributes for every atom in there, okay, and for every mode that's possible. So there's three n modes possible. So that's the factor of three in there. This guy, we want to integrate. 
okay, the average energy times the density of states over frequency. And the density of states now in the low temperature limit we can take to be what we just derived. That's using that linear approximation. Now, I have an integral, okay, that's left over, and I've been ambiguous about what the upper cutoff was. If we were using the full density of states, okay, if I had the actual huge expression for the density of states in there, I could just integrate up to the top of the band and I would be done. Okay. We took a low temperature limit, so it's not terribly obvious where to set this upper limit, but this factor down here, okay, e to the beta h bar omega, has a rapid cutoff. Right? Notice as omega gets large, okay, I have an omega cubed up top, that's going to go to infinity, but e to the omega is going to go to infinity a lot faster. So as omega gets large, this term dominates, and the integral is actually very quickly cut off. We're at low temperature here. Okay? So there's a quick cutoff, so I can take the integration up to infinity. Okay. So that's an approximation, but it's a good approximation. So I take then the total energy in the zero point moles, okay? And then this part here, copy these factors down, v over 2 pi squared times 1 over the longitudinal velocity cubed plus 2 over the transverse velocity cubed, and then I have this integration here. Okay. What I'd like to do is scale out, have an e to the beta h bar omega, I define a new variable, which I've cleverly not written down. The new variable is x, is beta h bar omega. That's the new variable up there. And then converting, the question quick. Yeah, like, would you have e total on the top? I don't understand why you do 3n times 1 out of h bar omega. Can you explain that Sure. So what I'm, what I'm formally doing is the total energy is the sum over mode of this guy. And then the sum over modes of 1 half h bar omega is 3n times that. Well, physically, what energy are we solving for? I mean, because you're assuming that all modes are occupied, right? Actually, I'm, I'm not. This is the zero point energy. So given that the mode exists, there's always oh, a zero point with energy in it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, this part is not uh, dependent on temperature. This is the temperature dependent part. So here we convert this, okay, let x be beta h bar omega, so this h bar omega cubed, okay, gets converted from beta h bar to the fourth there. I might be missing a factor of h bar there, okay, you can check that later. But the form of this integral is essentially x to the cube dx over e to the x minus 1, okay taking this to infinity because then we know the answer. Okay. This isn't an integral I recommend you memorize or learn how to solve. Okay, it comes up once right here. Okay. So this integral is pi to the fourth over 15. Use, use Mathematica. Okay. And now, okay, so this is a number, and then here's the important stuff. I'm interested in a heat capacity, which is the, the derivative of the internal energy with respect to temperature. So I need to take the derivative of this whole function with respect to temperature. This doesn't matter. Okay? This part is also a constant with respect to temperature. Here's the temperature dependence in 1 over beta to the fourth. This is a number as well. So here's the 
right now the energy, beta was 1 over kT, the temperature dependent part of the energy is going as temperature to the fourth. So now take the derivative of this with respect to temperature. Okay, keep in mind that this is this beta is really a k k to the fourth t to the fourth. Okay. These factors come down in front, but I get a t to the third power. So I had a t to the fourth up here. Derivative of t to the fourth is four times t cubed. So t cubed is the thing to take home here. Question. Um. So, if we were to look at from material to material, the thing that's going to be varying is that longitudinal <coughs> speed of sound. That's right. Okay. That's right. And the volume. And the volume. But yeah, this is the material dependent part. And the important thing to take home here is that the heat capacity for a phonon system goes like TQ. All of this other stuff is really constant, right? You have, um, you have the Boltzmann factor, you have uh, Planck constant, you have you know, material dependent numbers, but what, what experimentalists like to plot is they take data as a function of temperature. So if you saw a heat capacity graph okay, that had a T cubed dependence to the heat capacity, you should say, aha, that's dominated by phonons in the system because it's T cubed. So that's the, that's the signature, and that's the important thing to take home. So even if you forget the rest of the stuff, don't forget how to derive it, though. Remember where it came from. But the important thing is the T cubed law. Okay? That's the sort of thing that when you're at a conference, okay, you're, you know, you're a grad student, your advisor sends you off to a conference, and somebody has some data, it's got a T cubed law to the heat capacity, you can just sit there and go, aha, uh -huh, that's phonons. Right? So it impresses people at conferences. You say, ah, yes, I recognize that. It's a phonon heat so we did this in the high temperature limit. <laughs> we now know the low temperature limit. So we could just extrapolate, okay, and say that the, the heat capacity okay, starts off in, as T cubed and then pans out to the high temperature uh, equipartition limit. If we want to get the exact result the whole way through, we have to use the full density of states. Okay, it's a lot of work. Which is why Debye came up with the following approximation. So in the Debye approximation, here's, here's the method that Debye used. Let's pretend that this thing is linear all the way up. Okay? Let me just approximate this. Keep moving the, the markers. Let me approximate this, this mode as just being linear all the way up. Okay? Now, the next thing you have to do is tell me where these integrals are going to end, right? We're always taking a sum from zero up to the top of the band, okay? This band doesn't exactly end, it's just linear all the way up, but what you do is you set the frequency cutoff in order to get the number of modes correct, okay? Because the number of modes is immutable, can't change, right? Number of modes, there, there are three n of them available in the system. So, however I count this up, I'm going to cut it off at a place that gives me the right number of modes. If I use the real dispersion, I'd automatically get it correct. Okay, so, there's a bit, um, you have to calculate uh, omega to by in order to find out where to cut the integral off. So, here's how you do that. 
Okay, you take your density of states, okay, which now we've made the Debye approximation, so we've, we're pretending that the dispersion <coughs> is linear all the way up. We know the density of states for the linear case, we just calculated it, okay? So the way that I make this approximation self-consistent is to say, let me count the number of modes, okay? So I can take an integral over the density of states, okay, based on the, the frequency. That tells me all the modes in the system, right? Because this was the number of modes per frequency, I integrated all the frequencies, that has to be the total number of modes, which is 3n. So this equation right here defines omega to by. And I know this, right, we just calculated it, it went like omega squared, okay, so this is then an integral that, that we can all do. Integrate, should be an equal sign right here, right, equals, okay. So the integral of omega squared to omega is going to be omega cubed over 3, okay, so substitute that back in for this frequency here. And this then gives me a self-consistent equation which defines omega to by. So now then, if I want to calculate what's the heat capacity according to the Debye approximation, the point of all of this was to set omega Debye. Okay, so now I know what that is. So now if I calculate then the total energy in the system, there's the zero point energy. Here it's summing over everything. Okay, I don't actually want to go to infinity, right? This is omega Debye in the Debye approximation. So then the heat capacity is just the derivative of this whole thing with respect to temperature, okay. which, of course, I always end up getting out this T cubed dependence, okay, times this big integral here, which is also temperature dependent. Okay, so this is this is um, complicated, right? This is a hard thing to solve because this is not um, it's not a, a complete integral. This went from zero to infinity. We could solve that. It's going from zero to some temperature-dependent cutoff. Okay, it's a mess. But if you wanted to plot out the heat capacity as a function of temperature, you could do it numerically, right? You can plot this out. It'll have the T cubed dependence at low temperature. Notice that if temperature goes low, this integration limit goes high. Okay, so that recovers exactly what we did before for the low temperature limit, and I get the T cubed law. Okay, and then at high temperature limit. Uh, it'll also get the right answer. So again, okay, the low temperature is what we've already done, right? Low temperature was where uh, T sub D over T goes to infinity, okay, and that's what we did before where that integral was 4 pi to the fourth over 15 and gave us this nice T cubed law, which you have to get at low temperatures. In the high temperature limit, okay, let's go back and extract the high temperature limit of this integral here. So high temperature limit, x is beta h bar omega. This is 1 over temperature. Okay, so high temperature means that x is small. Okay, so when x is small, the way to treat this integral then, okay, is to let these exponentials be expanded, Taylor expanded. Okay. So the first term here in e to the x is 1. So that'll be a 1 up there. Down here, having e to the x minus 1, okay, expand e to the x, that's 1 plus x, plus other terms we don't care about. 
Okay, so 1 plus x minus 1 is an x. So get an x squared in the denominator times the x to the fourth up here. The total integral would be an x squared. Okay, take, take notes fast. So then the integral, okay, becomes integrate x squared dx. And we know the answer to that. Okay, its upper limit, by the way, was uh, the divide temperature divided by temperature. So x squared integrates to x cubed over 3. And there's, there's the answer for the integral. If you plug that in, you get that the heat capacity is 3n times kb. And then at low temperature, okay, we've already done that part. And there's the answer. So what's really useful about the Debye approximation, and the Debye approximation, again, was this. Pretend that the frequency is linear all the way up, then set the cutoff so that you get the number of modes correct. Okay, that approximation is correct in both temperature limits. It gets the echo partition value correct, it gets the low temperature T cubed correct, and it gives you a way to interpolate in the okay. Any questions about that? About that last statement? Yeah. Use TD when you need estimate of omega max bonds. I assume you mean if you know TD, you can use the divide temperature to get omega D. Right. How do you know what TD is? Is that a measurable quantity? You can get it from uh, from the form of the heat capacity, okay, if you're looking at, at the form of the heat capacity. Um, so, like, if you do experimental measurements and, yeah. and fit yeah. the divide approximation you know, to it, really you get TD? I should probably say this the other way around. <laughs> the highest frequency of the phonons gives you a rough estimate of where omega divide sits. That's, I should say it the other way. Okay. What's going to end up happening is, you know, where is omega divide? It's going to be up here above the maximum frequency, but it's on the order of it. Okay. okay. So, they're, they're close. They're not equal, but they're on the same order. And this, so this is a very rough estimate. We can get into the free electron model a little bit. Are there any more questions about heat capacities, the by approximation, density of states? Density of states is a hard concept, so <laughs> read the notes, come to office hours if you have questions about density. So moving on to the free electron model. Um, this is a model that we use for uh, metals for the electron for the behavior of electrons that are in a metal. Okay, the it turns out that the electrons inside of a solid have many different phases that they can undergo. Right? You have heard of solid, liquid, gas. Those are different phases of matter. Those are phases of atoms. Right? What a collection of atoms does. Uh, there's also plasma. Sometimes people put that as a different phase of matter. There's also uh, liquid crystal phases. Okay, if you have a laptop, you have liquid crystal phases in that, in that laptop display. Liquid crystals are somewhere in between liquids and crystals. Okay, liquids have full translational symmetry everywhere. Crystals have discrete translational symmetry in all three directions. A liquid crystal is liquid in one direction, but solid in, in the other direction. So some liquid crystals are just layered compounds, okay, where you have liquidity in one 
plane, and then there's a plane above it that's also liquid, and there's a plane above it that's also liquid, but they maintain that periodicity. Okay. So a liquid crystal is just has a symmetry that's somewhere in between. So there's, there's more phases of matter than solid liquid gas. Okay. There's also, if we look at what electrons do inside of solids, they also have their own phases. Okay. So this free electron model is about when the electrons are behaving like a liquid. A metal, for example, has the electrons in a liquid phase of matter, meaning I've put a potential on them and the electrons can flow. Flowing electrons is like a liquid state of matter. So that's why this is sometimes also called Fermi liquid theory. If I tried that with, with the wood here, right? I put a voltage across the wood, the electrons are not going to flow. Okay, they're more or less stuck. And that's roughly like a solid-like state of what the electrons are doing inside. Okay. So there are many, many different phases that electrons can do. Magnets, for example, we'll get into magnets later. Different phase that the electrons are in. Okay. So this is about what happens when electrons are liquid-like. It turns out then that I can treat the electrons in a metallic solid okay, as though there's freedom to them, as though some of the electrons are free to move about the crystal. Not all of them, right? If we think microscopically, we have large atoms, okay? Only, say, the outer electron is going to pop off and be free to move about the crystal, okay? And be responsible for the crystal bonding and all of that and for the conductivity. So this is why we would think about free electrons in a box. So there's some similarity, okay, between an actual metal <coughs> and free electrons in a box. Remarkable, but true. So now, now that I've motivated that physically a little bit, let's think about what would happen if I had a collection of free electrons in a box. I always put things in a box, right? Because then I can quantize them, I know exactly what their energy modes are, and then I can do the math a lot easier. So the, so the shocking thing is that this model of free electrons in a box is going to have something to do with real solids. It'll have some similarities to metals. We'll actually be able to get a lot of mileage out of understanding what electrons do inside of a metal out of this model. Now, in real solids, there are interactions going on. Okay. What I mean by free electrons is that not only are they free to move around, but they're not going to have interactions with each other. So electron-electron interactions, the fact that two electrons repel, I'm going to neglect that for the moment. The fact that inside of a solid, an electron would notice the rough positive ionic potential of an atom that it passes by. I'm going to ignore that as well. Okay? So ignore all of that. This is essentially going to be an ideal gas of electrons. Free electrons. They're independent except for the Pauli exclusion principle. Okay? The Pauli exclusion principle will affect their the uh, energy levels. If I try to put, you know, one electron in the box, no problem. If I try to put 10 to the 23 electrons in the same box, they have to adjust with respect to each other because of the Pauli <coughs> exclusion principle. No two electrons can occupy the same state in there. So they'll have to, they'll have to adjust. So this is based on that, okay, put the free electrons into a cube of, of length L, and each of them I'm going to let obey the Schrodinger equation, okay, where the Schrodinger equation here Okay, this is the, the Hamiltonian times the wave function is the energy times the wave function. I should say the Hamiltonian operates on the wave function. This part here represents kinetic energy only. If you haven't had quantum mechanics, this looks odd. Um, 
and I'm not explaining this to you yet. <laughs> Come to my office hours or ask a physicist. This represents p squared over 2m in quantum mechanics. It turns into an operator, which is <coughs> del squared. Okay. So the wave function then for one electron, okay, I'm using in fact a completely independent approximation. It's an approximation, but it's going to get us some mileage. <coughs> so let me use single particle wave functions and then quantize those in this box and look at what are the energy levels allowed for electrons inside of that box. We'll assume periodic boundary conditions, okay? So that I'm imagining this cube wraps back around on itself, okay? If an electron tries to head out here, it just pops right back into the box on the other side. The solutions to this equation are plane waves. <coughs> So here is, is what the, the wave function looks like if it's obeying that equation. So there's a there's, uh, plane wave, of course, is e to the i k dot r. So basically, I hope you can convince yourself that this satisfies that equation. If I take a del squared of a plane wave, okay, I'm going to get down here a k squared. Okay. So this is going to end up being h bar squared k squared over 2m is equal to the energy. K is the wave vector step. Okay. And then in quantum mechanics, you have to go back and normalize things. So we say that the integral of whatever the wave function is, okay, squared over all of space is 1. This represents, in quantum mechanics, uh, integrating psi squared represents the probability of finding the electron. So psi squared in any particular place is the, is the probability of finding the electron right there. Okay. If I integrate over all space and there's only one electron, I have to find it. That's all this means. Just normalize the wave functions. And big V again is the, the volume of the cube. So that's that's what gives me this normalization here. Right? One over V squared, one over square root of V. So the periodic boundary conditions require that these wave vectors then are quantized. So in our plane wave, which had an e to the i k dot r, the wavelengths that are possible inside this box get quantized. Okay, the electron wave has to start and end at the boundaries of the box. So this quantizes things in the x direction as 2 pi over l. Okay, a piece of x here. This is uh, an, an integer. I'm mixing up units here a little bit. Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. P is h bar times k. And this is. I think I'm making a unit's mistake here. Okay. Yeah. So this, these, these right here should be integers. Okay. So now, if I take then, okay, the del squared of psi, right, and put in that form of the wave function I had before, and this pulls down a k squared out of the exponential. So then the energy levels here are h bar squared k squared over 2m. And the eigenvalue, of course, of this, this is a, an operator, right? It's a, uh, got derivatives in it operating on that wave function. The eigenvalue of this is the energy. And the eigenvalue of the momentum operator, I haven't had quantum mechanics, this one's a leap. Turns out that momentum and quantum mechanics can be represented as minus ih bar times the gradient. That tells you how to look at a wave function and get the momentum out of it. 
So then this becomes, okay, operating this on the wave function gives me back the momentum, where the momentum is h bar k. Okay. And we should stop. So let's let's stop there and I will see you on Thursday.